two chapters will form the basis and the foundation upon which my sermon is based. Um, maybe you've kind of caught a flavor of that running through some of what we've already read and sung. But I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter for a couple reasons. Because I'm only really going to focus on one verse and maybe really just a few words within one verse. And and not appropriate to rip something out of God's Word. I want to give you the entire chapter's context. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3 and then I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3 as the, the New Testament reading. So, God's Word in the Old Testament. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said, the Woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shall bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and, thou, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man 
placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That is the Old Testament reading. Now I'd like to encourage you to go to 1 John chapter 3. Again, I'm going to read this entire chapter. John is writing to his beloved church. His word has kept been kept pure in all ages for our benefit as well. 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should call, be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us, not, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither is he that loveth not his brother. Heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, we with all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us, by the Spirit which he hath given us. As far concludes the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, I said I was going to focus on one particular verse from Genesis chapter 3, and that's what I intend to do 
Although we will be moving through God's Word, I'm not going to ask you to flip and try to race with me. I've got some bookmarks in here. Maybe I'll get, them, get it done well. Maybe I've got to flip a little bit myself. But I want to draw your attention back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, what's been called the Proto-Euangelion, kind of the first announcement of the, the idea of the gospel, of the good news, of something that was going to be different later on down the road. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 reads thusly, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Matthew Henry talks about this in, the, in the, his commentary as something that would give Adam and Eve hope. Context, we've got creation, God creating everything by the word of his power in the space of six days, declaring it all very good, created everything from nothing, nothing that, no pre-existing group of hominids, that's not how Adam and Eve were created. Adam from the dust of the ground, Eve from Adam's rib, it's what the text clearly tells us. And so, we don't exactly know the period of time, but things are going well for a while. Genesis 2.17, God gives Adam the basic statement of what we know is the covenant of works. Obey and live, disobey and die. Real simple. One job to do. Don't eat the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And we see Adam fails in his mission. He eats of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. We need to recognize that it's Adam's sin. This is going to matter greatly theologically further down the road. People want to focus on Eve being deceived. And if the text tells us that Eve was deceived, as we read in the New Testament, that's fine. But we need to recognize that the promise was given to Adam. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, these tiny little words in verse 6. And gave also unto her husband with her. Two little words, with her. Adam wasn't off in another part of the garden. He's right there. And he's the one that got the promise given to him plainly. All these you can eat, don't eat this. Because if you eat this, you will die. Obey that and you're good. Disobey that and death. So Adam brings sin into the world and death through sin. We see that all through Scripture. We're going to talk about that. Our confession of faith in chapter 6 in particular, the first four sections, leans heavily on discussing the consequences from Adam's sin and how it damns all of us because he was the federal head of humanity. As it went with Adam, so it goes with us. The New England primer in colonial America, as it taught young people the alphabet, as it taught the letter A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Adam damned us all. Now, thanks for that. And what wound up starting was the earthly version of the long-going, ongoing battle that started in the heavens with Lucifer. The war shifted the, the physical location. Because what the Bible talks about, we've talked about it el elsewhere and in other contexts, that the Bible talks about two religions. 
the true religion that God lays out clearly, to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. By grace, through faith, based on what his word teaches, all of the solas that we know of the Reformation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. There's your five solas of the, of the Reformation. And then there's the false religion, basically everything else. Literally everything, not even basically, literally everything else. If God, from end to amen in the Bible, anything that goes against this is the other religion. But in the same way that the Bible talks about two religions, the Bible talks about two families. We have a Hatfield-McCoy kind of situation going on here. If we look at it, plainly laid out. We have Adam's seed, which is the seed of the serpent the rebellious seed, the disagreeing seed, the disobedient seed, the wicked seed, the seed that is at war with God. And then this other seed. What does it say in Genesis 3.15? And the seed of the woman. Because Genesis 3.15 is God speaking to Eve. Let's go back and look. Actually, it's God speaking to the serpent, but speaking of Eve. I'm sorry about that. Look at verse 14. And God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Here we go. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. So we've got two families talked about in Genesis 3.15. And he goes on to lay out what exactly is going to happen that we see fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It, being the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. That's a crushing, killing blow. And thou shalt bruise his heel. That's bad. Have you ever had heel issues? a small thing with big ramifications. So we have that allusion to a crushing, killing blow, first thing, something that's bad, but eventually you get back to life, so to speak. So we have, in the same way that there's a true and false religion, there is the family of Adam. Ultimately, Jesus talks about that family later when he rebukes Peter, calling him Satan calling the, those who wouldn't believe him uh, of their father, the devil. So we see this played out in Scripture. We've got that family, that wicked family. I'm not going to make a stand on the Hatfields-McCoys. I haven't done the research to know who was right or wrong. Eventually, it, you know, it's enough sin. You just bet on sin and everybody's got a part to play. But in this family feud... You've got the seed of the serpent, and then you have the seed of the woman, which implies that there's something different about the seed of the woman. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments. Let's focus on this seed of Adam. Adam being the head, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Death came into the world through Adam and his sin, which crushes the concept of theistic evolution. Just parenthetically, since we're in Genesis... There was no sin prior to the fall. So, 
if God had used some sort of evolutionary process prior to Adam, Carl Sagan said that the evolutionists' friends are time and death. Death couldn't have existed prior to Adam. We have a theological problem if we're trying to balance and cram an evolutionary model into what God has said is non-evolutionary. Let's just focus there. Adam brings sin and death into the world. Damns all of his uh, progeny. Because our confession sums it up this way. That everyone has the taint, the, the stain of original sin who come into the world via this interesting term. Ordinary generation. Now, that's some of you youngsters might not know what that's code for, so I'll tell you a little bit, but not too much. Ordinary generation means how the normal way kids come into the world happens. So everybody that comes in with, the, with part of your mama, part of your daddy working together has that imputed wickedness in, in their nature. So... Adam brings death and sin and wickedness. And what do we see through the rest of the Bible? We see the ongoing discussion of this family, these two families fighting. Because somehow we have the seed of the woman being different. If everyone has the stain of original sin via ordinary generation, to use the confession of faith's language then there's something different about the seed of the woman that is extraordinary generation. Now, does the Bible talk about somebody coming into the world via extraordinary generation? I would certainly hope, if you are a blood-bought lamb of the Lord Jesus, this should sound familiar to you. There is something different about the seed of the woman in the person of Jesus Christ. The virgin shall give birth to a child, we see Isaiah discussing. God sending his son is discussed all through the scriptures, and we have in the Gospels the extraordinary generation of the second person of the Trinity. And it had to be that way. See, the plan was always Christ. People want to talk about, well, what if the fall never happened? The fall could have never not happened because the plan was always Christ. To think anything else makes Jesus plan B, which means God had to scramble to figure out another plan once we thwarted his will. And we can't do that. Who are we that we would wag our finger in God's face and say, I know what you planned, but I'm going to throw this curveball to you. But that's what the sons of Adam do. All through history. That's what we in our natural state do with God. We read his word, it's plain before us. But we don't understand it in our natural state. In our ordinary generated state, if I can make that link. William Shedd, the American Presbyterian theologian, had two great books, two great works that have been put together. Sermons to the Natural Man, Sermons to the Spiritual Man. Now, why the two? Because he understood the family battle going on here. There's something different about the seed of the woman. And Jesus, in fact, is that seed. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Ghost. 
So not conceived via ordinary generation, like the sons and daughters of Adam. He's the God-man. And it had to be that way, just like Anselm wrote in the 11th century, Curdeus Homo, why the God-man? Had to be human because humans were the ones that sinned against God. Humans had to be the one to make the payment. But humans can't make the payment. We can't do enough good. The very thought that we could do the Ten Commandments. I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, I love her to pieces. She's been called home to glory. In the beginning of my ministry in Texas, she said, Pastor, if, we could, if our country could just live the Ten Commandments out, we would be a whole lot better. I said, Sister, I love you, but it can't happen. We can't live out the Ten Commandments by our own strength. The very fact that we think that we... And I wasn't attacking this, I'm just pointing it out. The very fact that we ever come up with the idea that we could negates the first one. And what James tells us, if you think you're justified by the works of the like one... It's like you've broken them all. So we can't just be better. There's no building back better with humanity's status with God. It can't happen. Left on our own. But God hasn't left us on our own. There's this other family that he talks about in Genesis 3.15. The family that John mentions. The family you've repented of your sins and trusted in the gospel. It's the family of which you are a member. This seed of the woman, this other seed line, this other bloodline, you've got right from almost the very, like, this almost the split second, you get the sense that it was the fall, like, it was the eating the fruit, bam, God, bam, the curses, bam, you're gone, like, immediately. And then this. From the start, God is providing a way back home for his wayward children. And look at how Genesis chapter 3 ends. Where are we? Where are we? Verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So Adam and Eve took fig leaves, right? It's not getting a whole lot done in long term. It can cover in the short term. If you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere and for some reason you've lost all your clothes. I don't know what scenario we could have. But you come up with fig leaves. That'll cover for a little while. But what does God do? God sheds blood. God kills animals. And God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. And the covering of God is always better than the covering of man. Always. There's a lot of gospel allusions in this one verse of God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins that had to have had some of the blood of the the animals on it. The The concept of a blood as a covering starts here. We see it in Egypt, in Exodus. Blood of the lamb over the doorpost is the covering, the sign of God's people. We see the blood of Christ washing us away, washing our sins away. It's a sign and a seal of what he's done for us. So God has always had this in mind, and he has always had a way to adopt people from the seed line of Adam into the seed line of Christ. Now, all we have through the entire Bible is the the butting of heads between these two families. 
starting in the very next chapter, Cain and Abel. And, and that's what we see in James, reminding us that Cain's sacrifice wasn't what God commanded. Abel's was. Now this, for those of us who hold to the view that God, as God, has the right to tell us how we should worship him rightly, this makes a lot of sense to us. Cain went off script. Abel followed by faith. And that word shows up all through Scripture. Ultimately, we see it in the, in the, the pinnacle in Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith. We see by faith, and then the list of Old Testament saints that lived by faith but never saw things come to fruition. So Abel lives by faith. He does what God tells him to do. Cain goes off script. And God even pleads with him, look, haven't you been taught, haven't you been shown that if you bring the right offering... This is going to go well with you. But you have the bloodline fighting starting right off the bat. And it goes on and on. We see Jacob and Esau. We see all through the patriarchs. We see the the very the Exodus itself. What is that if not a fight between the two seed lines? Those people who are living by faith that what was spoken of in Genesis 3.15 is actually going to happen. They might not know when. And isn't that the, the road down which we walk? We're living by faith. We know these things are going to happen. We don't know when. And that's why the centurion's prayer to Jesus, the plea to Jesus is so poignant and so powerful. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We're going to struggle. We're going to stumble a bit. We're not going to understand why things are happening the way they are. No doubt every one of our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament thought the same thing. Why am I doing this? God has said it, and I'm going to do it, but man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how it's all going to fit together. But God told us to do it. We're going to do it because that's just the only other option we have. That's the seed of the woman. That's the seed of Christ. That's the other family right there. So you've got the the federal head, being Adam, who was tempted and dropped the ball, sinned against God, ate the forbidden fruit. You have this second Adam that Paul talks about in Romans. Oh, we talk about it all him all through the Bible. But Paul is mentioning this last Adam, this second Adam, who was tempted but did not fail. Now, why did he not fail? Because he was from a different family. He was from a different bloodline. He's from that seed of the woman. He's the God-man. Because, like I said earlier, he had to be fully human because humans were the ones that sinned against God. But he also had to be fully divine because only God can satisfy divine justice, a divine being satisfying divine justice. He's the God-man. It's why he didn't fail. It's why the, the time in the desert went completely differently than the time in the garden for Adam. So those are the two families right there. And the entire Bible is a discussion, to some extent, of this family feud, these families battling each other and going to war. 
And what are the Israelites told in the Old Testament? When you go in to take this land, don't mix with them. Why not? They're not part of the family. They are not the godly, living-by-faith people that are looking to Genesis 3.15 and trusting, okay, I don't know how this is working, but Moses just told us in Genesis that there is going to be someone further down the road that's going to fix what Adam and Eve broke. So we're going to trust that, and we're going to live. God called out from the people of Adam, from that family, a group of people and made them his own family. That's why 1 John 3 is so important. It talks about the doctrine of adoption, this concept. And if you don't grasp it fully, just think of it this way. The old books, the Anne of Green Gables series that Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote. Anne Shirley, adopted into the Cuthbert family. As a result of the adoption, the legal transaction, she is given rights and benefits and duties and responsibilities pursuant to being a part of the Cuthbert family. She can inherit property. What happens to them happens to her. So in a real sense, she becomes a part of the Cuthbert family. Now maybe she holds the same name of of Shirley, but she is part of the Cuthbert family based on a legal document, a legal pronunciation. It's the same way with the family of God. God calls family from the other family, the family from Adam, that's a rebel, that's wicked. And I'm going to go to Romans chapter 3 here for this. And I'm going to do that, if you'll indulge me, because Paul hopscotches through the Psalms, and it's a good summation of what the family attributes of Adam's family are like. And I would be flipping like crazy if I tried to go to the other one. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. This is what Paul says. As it is written, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of curses, cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For those who don't, don't recognize Christ as their Lord and Savior who have not repented of their sins and received the blessing, the sweet freedom that David talks about in Psalms 51 and 32. For those people who are at war with God, like James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, those attributes, those eight verses, nine verses, sum up how their life will flow. And what do we see in the world today? If not the fulfillment of of those attributes. What does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 12? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Paul, earlier in Romans chapter 1, talks about these people as replacing the cre- uh, the worship of the Creator with the worship, uh, worship of the creature. They've swapped it all around. They've got it all twisted up. 
and left to their own devices, that's all that's going to happen in their lives. They will call evil good and good evil. They will call holy what God calls abomination. Adam's sin damned all of us in our natural state, and we can't even see spiritual things, because Paul reminds us in Scripture, the natural man receiveth not not the things of God, neither can he understand them, for they're spiritual in nature. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. So spiritually dead, not part of the seed of the woman, not part of the family of Christ, but we have the family of Christ mentioned. And the entire New Testament references being brothers and sisters in Christ and being a family and and that family language, that familial language for people who have had family dysfunction or been in a broken home or broken families. It's a real problem. And we don't normally in our mindset because of the sins that that dysfunction and sin bring in our lives. But God heals that. The doctrine of adoption is important because it's a legal transaction that says you wayward sinners who were once part of Adam's family because of what Christ did, his righteousness, his holiness is given to you freely. Imputed is the term the theologians use. It's given to you freely. It's a free gift. You can't earn it because every time you try to earn it, you show yourself to be more of a son of Adam and less of a son of Christ. But because of what Christ did, God tells his people, I'm going to make you a part of my family. The creator of heaven and earth loved you so much that he wouldn't leave you as your sins deserved, but he sent his son to do work that you couldn't do to fix a problem that you created. You don't deserve his favor, but he gave it. That's what grace is. So, how do we get a taste of that? How do we get in on this second family, this this seed of the woman? Jesus has words for that in John chapter 3. Seems like chapter 3 is pretend to pop up today by God's providence. Because our first birth, our first birth into the world, we're, we're doomed. We've got a losing hand from the start. And we're going to stay on that track, in that rut, unless God comes in and knocks us out. For anybody that's had an adult conversion, you kind of know that a little bit more clearly a little bit more realistically than maybe folks that have been raised in the church. Now that isn't to say that their their conversion experience or their experience with the Lord is any less valid. It just means we've got to work together to help each other understand how this works. Because those of us who've been an adult convert need those people that have walked with the Lord forever, like have never known that day without Christ as Lord. We need that because they have a consistency and a long-term view that maybe we don't get. And vice versa. We have a perception of life and in the kingdom and maybe a fresh perspective uh, that we can bring to bear with the folks that have been Christians. So we need one another. It's one of the sweet things being in the family of Christ. But you don't get in by doing something. In fact, it's the view that you can't do anything 
that might be kind of the prerequisite to understanding how you get in in the first place. This second birth, this rebirth, this spiritual birth is what Christ talks about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And then later in John chapter 3, we, you know, we hear, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The very next couple verses, let's go to them. I'm not going to, I can't paraphrase these. John chapter 3, looking particularly in verse 18. Jesus is having the conversation with Nicodemus that should have known all these things because he's a teacher of God's word, but because of the natural man situation being in the family of Adam, not fully grasping it. So Jesus sets him straight. And he lays out this, the idea of being born again. You must be born again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, God, is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. We see that trumpeted all through the New Testament. Thanks be, you know, you're dead in your trespasses. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who made us alive. Ezekiel. Back in the Old Testament, talked about God removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. That's that second birth. That's that adoption action, that pronouncement of being a part of the family of God. And Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth on him, being Jesus. Jesus saying the one who believes in Jesus isn't condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Adam's family is already condemned. The sword of God's judgment hangs over the natural man's head like the sword of Damocles in Greek mythology. At any moment, that sword could fall. And that's why Scripture talks about the urgency of salvation. That today is the day of salvation. Because we are all in our natural state under a death sentence. But it doesn't have to be that way, Jesus says. If we believe in Christ's work, in the power of his blood, in the efficacy, the efficient nature, the effectiveness of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, if we believe in that work more than our own, if we set aside all of our attempts to get right with God, you hear that phrase over and over again, I just got to get right with God. What does that mean to you, natural man? It just means trying to do good things and avoiding bad things and dressing uh, one way and not another. I almost went, outran my coverage on that. Uh, it is not hanging out with bad people, but hanging out with good people. Now, can all of these things be good, godly, wholesome things that we should do? Yeah. But they are done as a result of what's already been done for us, and we live out of gratitude. We run from sin. We turn from sin. That means if I see an attractive woman on the, road, on the street or in the mall or in a store, I don't gawk. I don't hide that image in my mind. Reckon you can't not... That's an attractive person. You go on about your business. And you don't harbor those things. You don't, you don't hold on to those thoughts and act and think and speak inappropriately. Not so that God will love you. 
It's because that's how God would have us live, to turn from sin and to turn and live holy lives. But we can't live holy lives unless His work and His righteousness has been given to us. Because we don't know what holy is unless He tells us. So we have to be born again. That rebirth has to take place. So if you... It's one of the reasons we don't necessarily talk about like the, well, I was saved on this moment and that time and I did this and I said this. Those are good things to have because it's good to know when God had sort of led you in a particular direction. But we who are want to be very biblical in our application of this idea of God saving. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. We would want to say, yeah, I remember praying, like for me, just to use my example, I remember praying January 5th, 1999. Pray that God would forgive me for all of the the times I tried to be good and, and all the mess that I made my life. And that I would trust in Jesus and not myself. Now, the man who was with me at the time, who would become my father-in-law, said, you need to understand something. This prayer is great. This prayer reveals what God has already done in your heart. He has already changed your thinking. The prayer didn't do anything. The prayer shows what was done. We are the passive recipients of God's active work in our lives. We don't add to God's work in any way. We are laying, like Augustine said, we are laying dead in the pit, flat on our backs, stone dead, and God picks us up and does all the work of salvation. We are not like the heretic Pelagius, who said, God reaches down and we reach up and we work together for salvation. No, not at all. God does all the work. And anything that flows out of our lives that's remotely holy comes from Him. And the Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts and changes our thinking so that we see Genesis to Revelation not as just some Bronze Age book written by a bunch of imbeciles that didn't know any better, which is what the natural Adam family would see. And we see it as the words of life. We can't turn anywhere else. That's what adopted sons and daughters think of the Bible. We wouldn't dare try to change it. We wouldn't dare try to manipulate it. We wouldn't dare try to say, you know what? Paul was not Jesus, and Jesus said this, and Paul didn't know uh, the possibility that this could exist, so Paul was wrong, and Jesus didn't know. We wouldn't even dream of doing that. The Bible is a discussion of true and false religion, and two families fighting. Now, In the grand scheme of things, it's a silly fight. Because in that same verse where where God is talking to Satan, and he says there's going to be two families, he gives away the story. There's no spoiler alert in Genesis, but he kind of lays it out. He says, Satan, your family, you're done. It's going to be a fatal blow. The family of the seed of the woman. of the one conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
Not born of ordinary generation, but born of extraordinary generation. Fully God, fully man. His family is going to crush you. All the squabbles that we have in our lives, all the big things going on in the world, we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we shouldn't be overwhelmed by it. Because we know the ending. We know the ending. There are going to be troubles. Jesus said we would have trials. In fact, one of the ways we recognize that we are a part of his family is we have the same trials that he had. That shouldn't be a discouragement. It should be an encouragement. It should be, hey, wait a second. The world sees fit to come at me. Well, maybe I'm worthy of being a member of, maybe I am a member of Christ's family. Praise the Lord. That's why we see all through the scriptures, God's people praise, and we see it through church history. Why were the covenanters able to sing psalms as they're being burned at the stake? Because they knew whose family they were. And it was better to burn than to forsake Christ. Because ultimately they, like we, know how the story ends. Our family wins. Not because of us, all because of Christ. Hallelujah indeed. We got nothing. We would botch everything. It's one of the reasons when we fence the table for the Lord's Supper. We say it's not our table. It's not a particular church's table. Because we would find a way to mess it all up. It's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's salvation for the Lord's people. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you did not treat us as our sins deserved, and you did not leave us without hope. You did not leave us in Adam's family, but you reconciled us to yourself through Christ and made us your family and Christ's family. Please forgive us when we forget that. Please forgive us when we stumble as a result of just getting caught up. Help us to remember that we are not a part of Adam's family anymore, that through Christ's imputed righteousness, given to us freely, we have an entitlement to being called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. May we never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.